Welcome to Christians in the Public Square with your hosts, Cole Bennett and Scott Self. Hey, buddy. Good morning, Scott. Well, uh, I'm so glad you're back um, in the United States. You're not across the pond. Yes. But we're not in the same room. That's right. We are appropriately socially distancing, though we do not have the Atlantic Ocean between us. And I will tell our listeners that um, my, I and my students' trip to Oxford was cut short, and we all made it back to the United States safely, um, and we're very thankful for that. And we thought that as we begin our second season of Christians in the Public Square, Scott and I thought, it would be appropriate to start right off the bat uh, with the current situation at hand because it lends itself so well, uh, so cogently to the things that Scott and I often talk about. So as of today's recording, uh, let me just go ahead and announce the date, Scott, of our recording. Uh, this is April. That's a, probably a good idea. Yeah. This is April the 4th of 2020, and uh, it's it looks very different from March the 4th, and that looks very different from February 4th. As people who are listening know, things have increased. Uh, our situation has increased exponentially. So I was listening to a retrospective um, on the virus yesterday on um, on public radio, and I uh, it, it doesn't seem possible, but this whole thing started the first time they ran a news item about this was on New Year's Eve. Really. Yeah, and that was it was shocking to me to hear that that was the very first mention at all of the virus and here we are uh what 3 months later um and our lives are so different <laughs> so yes. different so fast. And know? I'm sure our listeners and you have looked at you know some of those data maps of the United States yeah. with areas that get darker and darker as time moves forward. That's some scary imagery, isn't it? It is. It is scary. And and in fact, um, you know, some of the projections of how many people might be might die as a result of the of the virus, how many people you know will be affected. I mean, I think I told you this. This'll this'll probably uh be a good segue for you to talk about my socialism, but I was at the Walmart um shortly after things started getting serious and folks were uh, being told to stay home and not go to work. And, um, you know, I wanted to get some things and I was seeing that the shelves were becoming increasingly empty and I started feeling a little bit panicky. Uh, But I noticed that some of my fellow shoppers were really struggling to figure out how to get what they needed to into the cart while they had money in the in the in their pocket because yeah. that wasn't going to be a certainty in the very near future and i had to kind of check myself because i i knew i can come back next week i can come back the week after i can come back a month from now uh and you know financially i'm going to be fine but if you if you're in an industry where you're not permitted to go to work and you're you know or you're self-employed and you're not sure whether you know, somebody's going to be sitting in your barber chair uh, tomorrow. That can that can um, 
it can create a lot of anxiety. And so, yeah, it's it's just a different world all of a sudden. So as we begin our second season in this, uh, amidst all this, uh, Scott and I were talking earlier about how we have seen a whole lot of action that might be described as sympathetic to Scott's view, a whole lot of action and response that might be considered sympathetic to my view of uh, economics and polity, and uh, quite a bit to discuss regarding Christians in the public square, both reaction and action. So I thought we would start, I would ask Scott to comment, if you would, on the action he's been observing on in his camp, including the the stimulus package that has been offered by the Trump administration. Some of that may or may not be uh, in your camp, but why don't you just comment on the the socialist action that you've seen? Well, uh, I want to be careful here. Um, I think I always say that every time we start to yeah. answer a question. I want to be careful here. I want to be careful because um, I'm not sure that what um, happened with the $2 trillion package qualifies as socialism. Um, and I, I'm i only teasing a little bit. Um, I have some concerns uh, about the uh, the package. I have some concerns about who much of the money goes to and what the whether there are strings attached. Okay. But on on principle, um yeah, this is what government exists for from my point of view. This is the very moment that government exists for is to provide a kind of security um and to also um that that security is I think understood more than just doling out checks. I think doling out checks becomes the least common denominator as we think about what it means to to help establish security within a within a country. And and and, and even economics becomes just one facet of that. Um I'm concerned that, for example, um folks might try to send out um bogus home testing kits for the virus. And I would like to ha- make sure that the FDA is vetting that so that consumers who buy a home test kit can be confident that they're actually getting the results that they need rather than um, something that is, you know, bogus. I would like to see that the government is um, helping to protect people from power of price gouging. <clears throat> I would like to see that the government is, even with, even in reference to the economy, is uh, trying to take steps to ensure that it is as easy as possible to conduct uh, business and to conduct trade um, while also keeping people safe. But I also think that um, we're in an odd time where we discover that the government has a role and that um, that especially in a, social, in, a, in a democratic socialist context, that the government actually has a role in even mitigating liberty to a certain degree um, to contain a virus, to contain, uh, to, to preserve life. Um, and that life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness 
that those three elements are in conflict with one another right now in very unique ways. And we are having to unpack together what that means. I think that's a very different thing that, you know, you've heard me mention this before. Socialism is an economic system. It is not a power system. And one of my frustrations is where folks say, well, you know, like like Venezuela, socialism is a, a an economic theory. But, but but having said that, we are in kind of engaged in this very unique uh, process of working out together where my liberty ends. And and you know, in fact, when Daryl visited with us, um, this was early on as the virus was uh, was expanding. But uh, he said, you know, the his old high school teachers, uh, your liberty ends where my nose begins, or vice versa. We see this the just how overly simplistic that is at this point. I don't know. I've been yammering. What do you well, think? I'm, let me, what do you think me, about what I'm selling? Yeah. Let me just ask you to, can you, I plan to talk in a little bit of detail, not too much, but a little bit of detail about the Trump stimulus package. So can you say a little bit more about what you think was a good idea and a little bit more about what you Okay. Checks to individuals. I'm, I think that's probably a great idea. I'm not sure that's enough, and I'm suspicious about its um, its effect because I don't really know how um, – you know, $1,700 means a lot more to some people than it means to others. But in the long haul of this virus, I just can't imagine that anyone is going to come out on the other side and say, but phew, I got that $1,700, so everything was gravy. <laughs> right. 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 So I'm not sure it's of its effectiveness – um, I'm not sure they need to send it to those of those like me who also have paychecks coming in. Um, so I, you know, uh, does something need to happen? Yeah, but is that the right thing to happen? I, I don't know. I, I'll tell you that from a socialist point of view, one of the things that upsets me the most about the two trillion dollar bailout for corporations is that we're giving money to corporations who uh, uh, of whom we have. We have asked very, very little. Um, in many instances, industries are are taking bailouts and uh, subsidies, and have also found ways to pay uh, virtually zero dollars in taxes uh, up until that point. Mm-hmm. And and I think and I think you know, um, Cole, help me a little bit with this because I I read it in a cursory way, and I think you've thought about it a lot more. But GM is a perfect example of this, isn't it? Yes. Where, you know, we've, we've, we've bailed out the auto industry in the past. And then when, when a crisis happens, um, you know, they kind of look at us and say, well, you know, we're not really all that interested in helping out. In converting our production operation to produce more ventilators, we're not really interested unless you're willing to pay a lot more, even though you bailed us out in 2008. That's it. That's it. Or the, with the airline industry, it's very hard for me to have compassion for an industry that lives on the um, the you know the goodwill and and is a beneficiary, direct beneficiary of um, U.S. trade policy. And then you know when things get tough, they're the first showing up, you know, with their hand out, and their hands are humongous. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know. The socialist says that there is a contract, a social contract being played out. And um, I don't necessarily believe that what we're going through at this moment 
is a great manifestation of that. It seems to me that we're handing out money hand over fist um, without any um, talk about what is the cost. What is the airline industry going to pay for uh, for the handouts they're receiving? And I don't just mean pay back with interest. I mean, if we have a responsibility to ensure that this industry remains or persists, then what is their obligation to us? If we have an obligation to ensure that the that the oil industry is buttressed through a period where I'm only having to pay a dollar thirty five for gas, what is their in what ways are they remunerating not me but us? In what ways do they turn around and and return the favor? Uh, so the the social contract of this. I think gets bastardized, especially in times of crisis. And the socialist in me gets very, very frustrated because I don't see any contractual uh, relationship here. What I see is um, industries asking for handouts. And let me add one more thing to your list. I've heard a lot of people... Go ahead. I know where this is going. No, no. A lot of people on your side... I'm actually helping you make your argument before I get into it. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. But people on on your side have said, why are we not preventing corporations who receive bailouts from then just buying back their stocks that they have sold? Exactly. Because that seems to be counterintuitive of what we're trying to do by, quote, unquote, keeping an industry afloat. Yeah, this is not socialism. What's going on here is crony capitalism, which is not the same thing as socialism. I know a lot of of free market people believe that those are part and parcel. But this is crony capitalism. It is, um, it's fleecing people, and it's not right. Well, taking money from taxpayers and giving it to corporations for... um, for sorted or for unchecked purposes, yes, I believe that is crony capitalism. I think a lot of what this package offered is is socialistic in nature, and I think there's a mixture involved. But I want to use your language to tell you what I think. Um, and you put it very well, but you didn't know you were putting words in my mouth. And that is, we can't seem to keep up with the unspoken agreements that we make with people when we give them money to help them along and then they don't do enough in return. And I want to suggest... That is a great way to put it. Well, I want to suggest that this is the problem with giving people this kind of relief. And Sure. No, let's talk about it. Yeah, what, what we're... I think it is much, much better and more forward thinking. Of course, I think that because I what I'm about to say is on my side of the of things, but... Um, to say, after 2008, especially if we want to look at our own timeline, hey, GM, hey, American Airlines, uh, hey, health industry, there's such a thing called retained earnings, and you should take a lot of stock into it, uh, stock meaning put a lot of thought into it, because you're not getting any more tax money ever. And sometimes it is possible that something will happen in this country, like a war, or a pandemic, where you're not going to have the ability to do business. And when that time comes, you better have a plan in place, and you better have some retained earnings, which at the household level is called a savings account, or a money market, with liquid cash, because you're not getting any more. 
And that way, I don't have to worry about whether or not American Airlines is repaying society in an appropriate way because who knows what that means to begin with and 10 people in a room will have 10 different ideas even if they're all socialists. So this business of handing money back to anyone, and I'll talk about people in a second, but especially to corporations, and I would add in this Trump package uh, to NPR, to the National Endowment of the Arts, to the Kennedy Center, adding, giving them taxpayer money uh, to museums in order to quote-unquote keep them afloat, who can keep up with what if what they're doing is sufficient quid pro quo to the tax money that they are getting. And, and I want to agree with you that that is almost impossible to decide, and that's why we shouldn't be doing it. Do you have a quick response well, before I move on? Yeah, my quick response is from your lips to God's ears. I mean, you know, it's easy to say, no, we're not going to do that until until coronavirus, until you need $2 trillion in the economy, until the um, airline industry is about to fold because there are no passengers, but you decide you still need them. And then at that, at that point, rules schmules. We're going to change it all right now because we there is not a Republican worth a name in this country who would have six months ago ever ever described a scenario where they would sign at the bottom line for a $2 trillion bailout. And now the Senate was 98 to zero. I mean, there are two abstains. Even your favorite senator did not vote no, he'd abstained. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk about Justin Amash for a minute. Justin Amash. Well, just just so we're clear, that's not your favorite senator because Justin Amash is a congressman. Right. But I'm just, I want to point out that your favorite senator did not vote no. But he did not vote yes. And I don't he abstained, which is chicken. Yes. Now, talk about Justin <laughs> Amash, because that guy's not a chicken. Yes, yes. And I will have words with Rand Paul next time I see him. And he's, at the moment, I think he's still battling the coronavirus, which is sad. You're right. That um, is sad. But I, want, I do want to know why he did that. But yes, Justin Amash is someone with in whom I have taken a great amount of interest in the past six months. Uh, and he's getting quite a following because he he adopts positions that are... Uh, they are right of center, but they are categorically not Republican. And so uh, he has he has said the only transfers of money that should be happening are to individuals, period. And I'm still thinking to the, the degree to which I agree with that. But yes, if you want to argue that Republicans are not fiscal conservatives, then we can just end this episode and I'm done because you're right. They are not doing anything to be fiscally conservative. And it is they they deserve what is coming down the pike for them when things are righted and voters start voting again. Uh, they absolutely are not being conservative. So in a, a moment ago, you said rules schmools when a pandemic hits. Well, Scott, let me push against that to the degree that you'll let me. Okay. I don't know. You, before before you before you go, Cole, I want to I want to say, I'm not saying that's the way it should be. I'm saying that's who we are as people. Oh, when I say rule schmules, I mean as people, we're just going to throw out the we'll throw out the rule book because it's no longer expedient. I'm not saying it should be that way. I'm not making a claim that. Oh, well, sure, right. That's what people are doing, absolutely, because people. But that's what they're doing, yeah. People in this country have become more socialist minded. 
they become more uh, wealth transfer minded. Whether they are rich or poor, as you have helped me see, a lot of people who are extremely rich have become more socialist minded. And um, the people who are on the uh, bottom runs of of socioeconomics are as well in many cases. But it's not, I realize it's not any one rung, and you've helped me see that. But in general, I think our country is getting pretty comfortable with wealth transfers. And um, I would argue that even in a pandemic, you can make gargantuan mistakes. And it's, you know, hindsight is not merely 2020, it's 200 200. And I think, um, I. I don't want to say it is settled intellectual scholarship, but I think it is very close to a clear understanding that FDR's New Deal programs delayed the recovery from the Great Depression. And what hastened the recovery was the, the government toning down its spending in the 1940s. That goes against what I learned in school in textbooks. That goes against um, people I've talked to who say, oh, I remember when when FDR created the, the CCC and, and had checks for people who were digging holes in the ground for trees and painting murals on post offices. Well, yes, the people who received checks were pretty happy about it, but whether or not it hastened the recovery from the Great Depression, people that I have read in, uh, in economics and political science have said, until the government radically cut down its spending in the 40s and had a more sensible uh, financial policy, then it didn't happen. And so I, I believe that what we are seeing now are people who are jumping far too quickly and at far too large a scope at trying to get to print money and get it to people and to, to bail out people rather than saying you're going to rely on your own safeguards against risk. And if that means that you fail uh, short-term or long-term, then that's the way it's going to be. And I think we as a country are, it's very difficult for us to embrace that. And it's, it hurts. It hurts people we know, but I don't think it hastens recovery to do what Trump did with this package. I agree. I Look, this is, it's funny to say this at this moment, and it's funny to say this we uh, because we forgot to rehearse our three tenets. Ah, yes. We're and, not, and no, 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 but this is a perfect time to do it right now. Okay. Uh, because I'm going to make a point that relates to at least two of our three tenets. Okay. You know, the most important of the three is bros before politicos. And we always make that the third one. But the first one is sacred cows make great barbecue. And the second one is let your flag fly proudly. And here's what I want to say for a moment. I think what's going on is a perfect illustration of the tyranny of compromise. Well, I like that. We spend so We spend so much time in this country aching for a time where we can all get along in Congress, where things move along and everybody works together to come to a solution to a problem. Look, the reason that there are so many people, and this is my criticism of free market capitalism, at least some of the some of the fundamentals of free market capitalism, is that it's based upon this idea of self-interest, right? Right. Fundamentally, what drives free market is self-interest. Right. 
But if I'm a billionaire and my self-interest is for the government to be involved in my business all of a sudden, I'm going to pick up the phone and call my congressperson and say, you know what? Socialism sounds a lot better right now than it did yesterday. That's right. Let's go for a $2 trillion package. Mm -hmm. And that is my self-interest. And what you have right now is a compromise of self-interests rather than um, people standing upon a set of values or virtues. Or principles. And Exactly. And my point being, when you decide that your principles no longer matter and that your self-interest matters, you will vote for uh, a package. For example, uh, if, if I am a billionaire and I want more money, uh, or I want the security that I believe the government can provide, I'll be fine with you also supporting um, uh, the National Endowment for the Arts all of a sudden, because if you get some, I get some. Mm -hmm. And I, I just want to point out from a, a political science point of view, I'm not a political scientist, but from a poli-sci point of view, what you have here is a brilliant compromise. If compromise is your value, this is a brilliant compromise. Everybody wins except for everybody. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Right. That's where I was coming to from when I was saying a socialist, I think. A socialist would look at this and say, huh, we didn't ask anything of anybody. We just gave. That is not a social contract. Well, and I would add that you are allowed to pursue your self-interest until such a time as you run up against the liberty of others and the language of the Constitution. And I would argue sure, that we are sure. seeing people who put their hands on sacred text and swore to uphold the Constitution who are thumbing their nose at that, at that affirmation. And, they, and I'm just saying, welcome to human nature. That's all. That's yes. my, that's been my point for the 24, 25 episodes previous to this. And that's human nature. Yes, yes. And my point for all 27 episodes has been, <laughs> we have a document that prevents human nature from overtaking liberty, and we are currently thumbing our nose at that document. And I think you would say that's the human nature part, is that we don't listen to documents whenever it's time to, uh, because human nature wins out. And that's, that's when I say that's a shame. And that's why I'm an idealist, and there aren't many libertarians in the world, but hopefully we're growing. But yes, we, that, that is exactly why people say because people will always pursue their self-interest, we need a system that has checks and balances against those self-interest overtaking liberty, and we're not paying attention to those. I want to. Uh, okay, so we've talked about your side. I want to talk about my side briefly and move to yeah, the, please do to the Christian response. Okay, I was trying to think of how to enter this discussion. So let me just say, as a libertarian, on on nine eleven, when the first plane hit the buildings. And I believe at, right after the second plane hit, George Bush in Florida said, item number one, land all planes. Do you remember that? I do. Every single plane in the air, land them. That way it would show who is not following orders and be a potential other plane. Well, if I'm on a plane going to Los Angeles to conduct business, and my president forces my plane to land, that is a violation of my liberty, and that is inconvenient. However, I would say 
that one of the, as you started this conversation, one of the main functions of government is to, using the language of the documents, provide for the common defense. And that means more than maintain a military. That means uh, the president and the executive uh, branch has realized that we are perhaps suddenly being engaged by terrorists and, and, and or war powers. And as a result has, saying, has said, I want to violate the liberty of everyone who's flying for their own purposes and land every plane. And I think that is totally appropriate. And in the same way, um, when our executive branch in consultation with medical experts says, you know what needs to happen? We need to stop people from flying for a time and we need to get people to quarantine as much as possible. And we need to have stores closed and restaurants closed. Those are technically violations of liberty, but they're in the name of something that I think is appropriately interpreted as provide for the common defense. So I want to stick close to the, to the, the document that guides our country, the documents that guide our country that people have sworn to uphold as I try to evaluate these things. Are you tracking with me so far? Oh, yeah. Yeah. This makes a lot of sense to me. Okay. And, and so... That's where I would start, and I would, I would say that very quickly, when the government starts to step outside of its narrow role, we start seeing problems, and I want to list a couple of them. First of all, there were several more than there was more than one company who had private testing kits, all right, for the coronavirus, but the CDC and the FDA said. We do not allow these companies to sell and distribute these tests. You must use the CDC's test only. And the CDC's test was faulty. Those are facts. Do you, do you remember hearing about that? Yeah, I, um, yes, that's those, uh, your characterization of their decision not to allow others to use them was that they were not approved but go ahead correct they were not approved meanwhile because they hadn't been tested by the fda that's right so the fda um i've heard a, a libertarian actually a utilitarian mike munger and others say the fda is a good thing it causes pro uh, processes to slow down so that people don't go crazy with drugs that haven't been approved yet so it's necessary and i'm going to put that over here on the back burner and say maybe so, and they they cite the use of thalidomide in the 50s and 60s uh, because we were slow and as a result didn't have the disastrous consequences that Germany had. But when we have a testing kit that we refuse in a pandemic ex uh, a pandemic spread of a virus to be used because it hasn't been approved. And we, what we only have in our hands is something that's faulty. I think that we are seeing government problems at work, especially in a time of fast-moving data. Uh, number two, you mentioned price gouging. And I, I could talk about this all day, but I won't do it. I think the purpose of prices is to send a signal to the market. A lot of good things happen when prices go up artificially, such as uh, people look for substitutes, uh, people... They choose not to buy it so that other people who need it more do buy it. And I would cite as an example of, of the first one, of the distilleries who have been making hand sanitizer, 
they have converted their operation to making hand sanitizer because they realized getting that to the market was more important than getting beer to the market or distilled beverages. And those substitutes have been born and are, are being distributed. So price gouging is a politically loaded term. Uh, I, I think prices going up during a time of scarcity is what we're talking about. And I think th- that that is a necessary function. And I differentiate that from fraud, which is showing um, an elderly person sawdust and saying, this came from your transmission and it'll cost you $3,000 or we're going to keep your car here because it's not safe. That's that's a kind of price gouging that's fraud. And that's not what I'm talking about. Are we clear on that? Yeah. Did I lose you, Scott? Are you still there? <laughs> No, I'm still here. I, you know, look. I mean, um, that it's not as I don't think it is as clear cut as this or that. I mean, when prices of oil go up drastically quickly for no no reason except for the um, the trade on futures, um, you know, people need fuel, and they don't necessarily have a choice of whether they get they pay, you know. $4 a gallon at Murray and $4 a gallon at Shell, when all the prices have gone up, they don't have a choice. It's not, it's not the same as, you know, eating bacon or not eating bacon. It's do you get fuel or do you not get fuel? So, I mean, I, I, I want to be careful here that, yeah, the, the price gouging is a thing. I think it, it exists on a continuum of severity uh, from outright fraud to the normal behaviors of markets, which a socialist like me would roll their eyes at, but say, yeah, I guess that is normal. I mean, there is a continuum. I have two responses to your gasoline situation. Go ahead. If the Shell station and the Murray station, did you say Murray? I don't even know who Murray is. Is that a I made it up. You made it up. Okay. <laughs> if the Bennett Shell Station and the Self Shell Station uh, are both selling gas for $4, if you want to argue that there's price fixing going on, then we have something to talk about. But if they're both operating independently and they're, and gas is at $4 a gallon, and I would say, um, first of all, they're going to be incentivized to say, you know, I only pay $2 a gallon for this. And if Bennett is selling it for four, I can sell it for three ninety five. That kind of incentive is going to be happening. But I will also say, Scott, I'll ask you to remember back uh, several years ago when gasoline went way up, people stopped driving as much. They carpooled, they biked, they walked, they segued, they scootered, they did all kinds of things. And the gas industry was shocked because they didn't realize that that would actually happen. They didn't realize there was flexibility and demand in that way. So I don't, I'm not going to argue that it's just it's different no, from bacon or no bacon. I think it's the same. Uh, well, and I will also say that. I don't know. You tell me if I mentioned this on the podcast before about our friends uh, and their, their uh, gas company in Hawaii. Yeah, you did, did but did it's I, a good story. Did I talk about it on the podcast? I think you yeah, did, but so, say it again. So what happened was during Katrina, the uh, prices of gas went up very, very quickly everywhere. If if you remember, gas got very expensive very, very quickly. Um, and that was because there was a lot of concern about the refineries in, um, in, in the Mississippi Delta. Well, um, 
in Hawaii, we purchased our gas from Asia, not from the United States. And so uh, there was really no good reason why economically gas went up uh, in Hawaii. And it was already very, very expensive. But one uh, gas company, one petroleum company that uh, actually was run by people that Cole and I know and, and love and appreciate, made a different decision in that moment. It was a it was a self-interest market decision, but it was just brilliant, which was that they uh, they paid a little money uh, to do this, but they said, we're not going to raise the prices of our gas here in Hawaii. We're going to keep them the same as they were before because we don't, uh, it doesn't cost us more to, uh, to deliver you at the same price as we were, as we've been charging. And uh, we, we just hope you remember us when this crisis is over. And oh my goodness, People remembered them when the crisis was over. I remember sitting in line, uh, sometimes four and five cars long, waiting to get my gas when I could have gone to the Shell station across the street. But I'm going to wait here with this company, and I'm going to purchase my gas from them because they uh, because they treated me right, you know, uh, b- before. And so um, that is an example of a corporation making a decision that is brilliantly self interest driven, right? They're, they're, they understand human nature, they understand the market, they understand the futures market, and they've made a decision based upon um, the, the long-term return on investment. Yes. So I, and I do think that there are, um, there are many of us who will just sometimes say, well, people just go for the short-term ROI, and they, they never look for the long-term ROI, and so therefore we have to regulate them. Maybe, and and this is a perfect example of how Cole may be right, maybe if we just left things as they are, folks would discover the benefit of the long-term ROI and the folks who live on short-term return on investments would uh, would peter out of the market. Yeah, and that gas station was playing the long game and was promoting the self-interest of, if I treat my customers well, I will be treated well at the end. And so I want to I want to to the people who are more in Scott's camp than mine. I just want to point out that pursuing your self-interest is not a dirty term. Because many people's self-interest is to help themselves and others. After I'm finished making all my wealth, uh like Bill Gates who recently announced the donation of millions of dollars into this pandemic issue, uh the man who um there there are people putting millions of dollars at stake into developing PPEs, personal protection. What does that stand for? Personal equipment, personal protection equipment. Um, and they are they are doing it from their position of having enough wealth to stop producing what they're producing and producing this. I don't think they're doing it because they are carefully calculating the profits. They might be, but a lot of, I just think a lot of people's self-interest is to gain enough cushion to help other people. And so the pursuit of self-interest is not a pejorative term. Let me finish then by <clears throat> by moving to a very, very macro level. And then I will let you start the discussion about the Christian response. In Adam Smith's book, uh, The Theory of Moral Sentiments, which should be read together with The Wealth of Nations, he describes what he calls the man of system. 
So he spends quite a bit of time in both books talking about how important individual decisions are that lead to things moving at a macro level. But then he contrasts it with the man of system. So this is a direct quote. The man of system is apt to be very wise in his own conceit and is often so enamored with the supposed beauty of his own ideal plan of government that he cannot suffer the smallest deviation from any part of it. He seems to imagine that he can arrange the different members of a great society with as much ease as the hand arranges the different pieces upon a chessboard. Uh, he does not consider that in the great chessboard of human society, every single piece has a principle of motion of its own, altogether different from that which the legislature might choose to impress upon it. And the great, uh, end quote, and the great 20th century uh, economist Friedrich von Hayek, there, he read Adam Smith, and there is a very, very often quoted sentence from Hayek, which is this. The curious task of economics is to demonstrate to men how little they really know about what they imagine they can design. And so, end quote. And so, from my perspective, there is no amount of top-down system, systemic planning that people on the East Coast can imagine to help remedy the economic difficulties that we are experiencing. No amount of wealth transfer, no amount of checks for $1,200, no amount of subsidy to this or that industry is, is going to be better than facilitating information and facilitating data so that people can make their own decisions about how to help themselves and help other people to hasten recovery. I'm done. And I think we live in a time and in a moment where maybe that has never been more on display than now. Mm. Um, I, I will say this, that um, I think we're going to have to push the Christian response to episode to the next episode. You do. Because... Yeah, because uh, I think there's something I think there's something here that needs to be expanded upon. It's not my assent that Cole is right, but I uh, I will point out that there are some ways in which I am wrong in this moment, and so I want to kind of explore those together because I think that most people look at this and say, "Oh, well, Scott the socialist must be really really happy all of a sudden because we're all acting like socialists." I, I want to point to something else, and in. Uh, in terms of human behavior, uh, and in terms of uh, that, that kind of uh, perjures my own or belies my own um, negative view of humanity. <laughs> Listen, anytime you want to perjure yourself, I'm thrilled about it. <laughs> uh, so, one of the re when, when, in that last quote from Hayek, you were noting that you know, uh, say, read that last line again from Hayek. Okay. The curious task of economics is to demonstrate to men how little they really know about what they imagine they can design. So listen to those words, how little they really know about what they imagine they can design. 
I want to point out something about the response to the coronavirus and the way that the economy shut down. It happened in spite of our government, not because of our government. We had a president who stood up there and said, this coronavirus is going to go away. It's just going to magic miracle. It's going to be a miracle. By the time April rolls around, the warmer weather comes, it just disappears. I am not exaggerating. These are things he said. He he likened this to, um, to the flu and said, there probably only be a couple of deaths anyway. So early on, the government was saying this is not going to be a big deal. The executive was saying this is not going to be a big deal. The only people who are blowing this up are CNN because they want ratings because they've had such a terrible time getting ratings. You can't trust the mainstream media. Trust my lion mouth because I'll tell you exactly what's going to happen. Not much. Right. That's what the government was telling us. Right. Meanwhile, our chilies here in Abilene shut down. Not because the government told them to. No, I, I mean, I was, I, I went, Beverly and I went to Chili's. This is in the early part of the pandemic and this wasn't a pandemic yet. Beverly and I went to Chili's and they said, yeah, we're not open tomorrow. The president was on the TV at the time saying, this is not going to be a big deal. Mm. And Chili said, yeah, we're, we'll probably just go ahead and close. Yeah. Schools already chose to close. These were not federal government decisions. In fact, the people decided it's in our best interest. The people educated themselves and educated one another. The media educated folks, we all got together and realized the purpose here. We started talking about not just social distancing, but the purpose behind social distancing was to flatten the curve. We started educating one another that early on, the point here was to stay home so that when we get the virus, we don't all get the virus on the same day and all go to the hospital on the same day. We get the virus at different points throughout the year, and there are resources available to us that we can use them. But that was in spite of, um, I'm being very, very careful here not to not to use derogatory language, but despite the executive and the and the language that was coming from the federal government. And so here is an example that I think is a perfect illustration of uh, of Hayek's quote where the people uh by um by our own interaction with one another uh, not just our own self-interest but our concern for our neighbor incited within us a reaction that shut the economy down, even at a moment when many in the um, in the executive were asking us to ignore it and keep the economy going. Right, that's right. So, so I want to kind of um, I want to take a moment here and admit uh, in front of you, even if uh, even from a distance, I want to admit in front of you. I oftentimes make I did in this very episode where I talked about how you know, um, rule schmules whenever we decide we don't need them anymore. But something happened in this, in the American response to the pandemic that I think folks need to stop and look at and maybe pat each other on the back and say, you know, we, uh, we are capable of making decisions that are in the interest of the public good even when the economy suffers, mm. even when um, people uh, from their demonstrated ignorance are telling us not to worry about it. Yeah. And, and also, uh, this could be a result of Trump being the one in the White House, but I, I was pleased to see how my fellow citizens paid a lot more attention to medical professionals than to the executive branch of the government. <laughs> yeah. Medical, prof yeah, yeah, yeah. medical professionals were saying, 
We came to work. Now you stay home. And I thought that was fantastic. And people did. They said, well, we're allowed to go out, but we're not going to. That's right. I mean, there were there were exceptions to the rule, but schools shut down because parents and and uh, it wasn't just because governors said in 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 our state, gov- the governor was very slow to respond. Um, I mean, when I say slow to respond, I mean slow to demand that uh, cities shut their their operations down. But our our city was already shut down. Mm. Not by the government, not by the federal government, not by the state government, not by the local government. The, the city was shut down by uh, companies that said, we'd love for you to to continue to visit our store, but we're bringing our food out to you. Yeah, yeah. That to me, um, what that does to me is that says, self, you need to check yourself and stop assuming that every decision that people make is always that self-interest is always negative that it always results in um in abuse that it always results in violence violence defined broadly but you know that there is always violence in the system what i often say to people um, who are thinking about these things for the first time is merely self the pursuit of self-interest is not the same as selfishness um, so I'm going to push our conversation about Christians in the public in the public square to our next episode. Okay, if that's okay with you. Sure. I want to close today by highlighting something that um, I think encapsulates our conversation here and maybe helps us think a little bit about where we're going n- next time. Okay. Um, I, I'm not going to name her, uh, but one of our colleagues at the institution where Cole and I teach. Um, she works in um, in one of the staff offices. About a day or two after things started getting, it's about when toilet paper started leaving the shelves. So it's back early March. Um, we weren't sure what was going on. We weren't sure what to think about things, but she put on her Facebook, hey, if you're worried about getting out um, because you don't, you're not sure about the virus and you need some healthy person to go get you um, a a loaf of bread or a jar of peanut butter, be my pleasure to go get it for you. And um, I copied her language and put it on mine, but it was her idea. And I was so touched by the thoughtfulness with which she engaged the crisis. She did not think about whether she was going to get the virus, but about people who were worried about getting the virus because they might be immunocompromised or there might be some reason for them to be a little bit skittish at the moment. Then her response was, let me go get your bread for you. I I want to um, celebrate for a moment the way that our economy uh, responded to uh, kind of these these realizations that things are not simply about me individually. We live in a moment where we've opened our eyes to our neighbor that I might get sick with the coronavirus. And I, frankly, because I'm healthy, frankly, because I'm relatively young, I'm, you know, I'd probably cough for a little while and then get over it. But if Betty White gets it, it could be dangerous and I don't want to kill Betty White. 
<laughs> that should be the name <laughs> of this episode. That's not my idea. That's, yeah, uh, yeah, don't kill Betty White. That was actually a meme I saw on Facebook. and I, But I think, I think um, you know, in places where we as Christians have an opportunity to help people do that better and do that more completely, and we can model that for others, uh, that's actually saving lives. It's not merely helping the economy move along. It's uh, it's saving lives, and I um, I, I want to note here that this is a moment in our history where being kind, being compassionate, being merciful um, has huge implications. It's not merely for the sake or the benefit of society. It's not like. You know, George Costanza standing out on a sidewalk wearing his big coat yelling, we're trying to have a society here. <laughs> right. In this case, it saves people. It saves people. And we're getting a firsthand view of the need for that kind of compassion, that kind of mercy, that kind of understanding that this, that this, that my life is not just about me. It's about others. And uh, it's not just about what I want, but about what others need. I think we're living in a really interesting moment that gives, I think, rise to the importance of the role of Christian virtue in the public square. So I I, I want to kind of maybe end there, Cole, and then next time I have some hot sports opinions about <laughs> what we've been, how we've been acting. That's great. And uh, That's, I can't wait to hear I'm going to wag my finger at some people, but I think... Uh, I think also I went before we get there there's some beautiful things happening around us that it's probably worth our time to take note of and, and appreciate. Sounds good. I look forward to hearing the, the, the rest of your thoughts. Okay, I'll see you buddy.